0: I mean, I think a lot of this turns on a basic concept of embracing self and self-love. What I see, like when when you strip off a lot of the layers, the fundamental problem that can get people into trouble is asking their voice to be something it's not. And trying to make your round voice fit into the square box is often what leads to the tension that gets resolved in trauma.
1: That's Dr. Steve Sims, and this is The Sound of You. Hey my friends, welcome back for this bonus episode for the first season of this podcast, The Sound of You. It's me, Davin, and I am the host. And as always, I'm so happy to be with you because it means I get to share with you a truly special and rich conversation with my friend, Dr. Steven Sims. In general terms, Dr. Sims is a voice doctor Um, But specifically, he is the director of the Chicago Institute for Voice Care at the University of Illinois Chicago Medical Center. He's a laryngologist, and he's going to tell you exactly what that means and how he even got that title. But first, I wanted to start by telling you a quick story. If you'll think back to the first episode of the podcast, you might remember me telling you about how a number of years ago I attended a voice symposium centered around contemporary commercial music and singing at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. And one of my big takeaways from that time, uh, aside from the fact that I needed to change much of how I was singing and how I was coaching and teaching, was also that I needed to build relationships with medical professionals in the voice field. And so I came back to Chicago and I looked up everyone I could find. And and I live in a big city. There are a number of people to reach out to. I sent emails, I made phone calls, and the only person to get back to me was Dr. Steve Sims. And I knew from our very first conversation that this guy was cool. Like we had a lot in common. The clients I was working with and the patients he was seeing, there was a lot of overlap. He was interested in collaboration and connection and community around The Voice. And we've maintained that connection ever since. Steve has an incredible heart, not only for this work around the voice, but more specifically around the people that it serves. And I think you're gonna get a taste of that in this conversation. Full disclosure, we do go to some far reaching places in this chat and some moments are rather technical with discussion around anatomy and physiology. But I think if you listen and you follow, you'll understand how this deeper knowing of how the voice works in the body enriches our understanding of the connection of mind, body and spirit. And specifically digging into this piece around what makes someone uh, more likely to experience success with their voice what points someone towards vocal health, what might show up when we have an issue with our voice, and how self-love and accepting ourselves authentically as who we are might be the secret ingredient to a healthy voice. So with all of that said, and without further ado, I give to you, Dr. Steve Sims. Okay, I'd like to begin this conversation by asking you to Um, define a little bit of terminology for us. I think in general terms, I can call you a, a voice doctor um, and maybe more specific professional terms, a laryngologist. But I know that there are a lot of different types of doctors in this field. And I think it would just be helpful to have you break it down and explain to us um, how you got the professional title that you have and, and sort of what it means.
0: Of course, and actually, that that is a great place to start uh, clarifying the terms because they are these terms have similar meanings, um, and there is a bit of overlap, and there is a way in which we as professionals have made it overly complicated, um, which is you know just part of what we do. Um, but you are correct in that I am a laryngologist because I did a residency in otorhinolaryngology, which we also call ear, nose, and throat, or ENT for short, but then after that, I did special training in just doing vocal cord surgery, and that is sort of what classifies me as a laryngologist, But the parent specialty for us is otolaryngology or otorhinolaryngology, abbreviated ENT for short. And so that's why there is a fellowship and a field sort of carved out for laryngology.
1: Cool. Yeah, this is super helpful because I think this is just so confusing for so many people because like you said, there's this this parent field of ear, nose, and throat. And a lot of times when people have a problem with their voice. I hear um, others say, well, you need to see an ENT. And while that's true, there are specialized fields. And so, if I'm understanding right, in your case, you have um, specifically studied and do surgery on the mechanism that is the voice. And so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there to clarify for anyone that if they are having a problem with their voice and they're in an area um, where they can find one, they should look specifically for a laryngologist. Absolutely.
0: I I take nothing away from my colleagues, but I'm, I'm completely honest about the fact that I did train in ear things and, um, some of the more basic things like, sure, you can come to see me to take wax out of your ears um, and to, you know, get your hearing test or audiogram and, and interpret that and know things about it. But I don't do ear surgery anymore. I haven't done it in a long time. And so I'm not the best person for you to see for that specific need of, of an ear surgeon. And in the same way, my colleagues who do ear surgery are wonderful and conscientious, but they aren't necessarily the best person to see for a delicate voice issue.
1: Yeah. So in essence, um, ear, nose, and throat doctors aren't specifically voice doctors. And so if one needed to get help with their voice, they'd be better served by finding someone like you, um, affectionately known as Chicago Voice Doc, uh, to help them on their journey toward a healthy, happy uh, voice So now that we have that technical information out of the way, could you tell us more about how you got to be where you are? Um, What were the makings of heading down this very specialized path of working with the voice in this capacity?
0: This career for me is a marriage of two things in life that I've been interested in for a long time. Music being one of them and sort of science and medicine being the other. So I started singing probably when I was about five in a local church choir in my hometown in West Virginia. Was always interested in music, loved it, loved being in the band, loved playing the piano, loved being in different choirs. Um, When I was 14, I started playing bassoon. Um, So that was sort of the backdrop that I was a musician. And when I was in high school, I was also taking the biology and Uh, biochemistry courses and thinking about what I wanted to do with life and I I wasn't completely sure that I wanted to do medicine but I thought it was interesting. Um, I did a little volunteer work in our local um, emergency room and you know but it was exciting and so I thought oh this is something that I might be able to see myself doing. The catalyst really was Annie Lennox. Uh, She had some voice issue, and I honestly don't remember exactly what it was now, but it whatever it was, they started talking about her going to see a voice doctor um, to help with that issue, and that was sort of the revelation for me that that was a job. <laughs> um, and so then in my naivete, because I was 17, I decided I was going to be a voice doctor, I had no idea what that path looked like, what I needed to do, so. I went to college saying I'm going to be a voice doctor. And again, I I did not know you had to do ENT to do it. I knew that they had said she might need surgery. So I assumed I needed to be a surgeon. Um, And for me, that meant going into general surgery. And so that was sort of a part of my plan. Um, And all through college, I was still singing, doing shows, musicals and stuff and majoring in African-American history because I just wanted to do something different. Um, (laughs) But all the while with a plan of doing my prerequisites and getting myself ready to go to medical school. And so my first year of medical school were in anatomy lab and doing the dissection. And one of my professors uh, was proctoring me through it, and I saw the vocal cords for the first time. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're so small. But I thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And... He started talking to me about Sarah Vaughn and all these different voices. He turns out he was a jazz lover. We start just running through a litany of folks and what their voices were like and how awesome the voice is and how wonderful it is. And he was the first person who told me you need to go into ENT. That's the field that you need to you to go through in order to get to being a laryngologist. And actually he called up the chair of the department and said, I got this kid here who who should be an ENT, take him under your wing and show him some stuff. And that was really my most enduring mentor in this field, Dr. Suzaki.
1: Isn't it funny how one person can almost transform the trajectory of your life by just a mention? You know, I was at a summer program when I was in high school and someone mentioned um, the name of the school Oberlin and I didn't know anything else and that's the reason I ended up auditioning there because that one person mentioned it and I respected her she was a teacher um, and that totally pointed me on a very different trajectory than I would have been on otherwise so um, shout out to Dr. Suzaki and those like him who point us down the paths on which we end up. Um, I want to go back a minute to Annie Lennox what was it about Annie Lennox that also pointed you down this path towards voice and voice medicine? Oh, because I loved her voice.
0: Um and, and that again was I said, you know, my story is really pretty old because I remember um when I was very small, uh there was a soloist in my church, uh, Miss Bessie, and she would sing, um Soon I Will Be Done was definitely one of the ones that I absolutely loved. She would open her mouth and I would just be moved. Mm. (laughs) And I was completely all in and fascinated by it. And that was really how I started, like wondering how the vocal cords work and wondering how she made her voice do those things and how she could, you know, Move the the entire congregation that way, which I ended up actually writing about in my essay to get into ENT residency. All
1: this world, with the
0: Because, uh, again, it was genuine. Like, and, and it had been that long that I had been thinking about voices. And so, you know, Annie Lennox just, just had one of the voices that is captivating. You hear it and you want to hear more of it. But, you know, that was my experience. And I was like, wow, you could be a doctor who gets to, like, help take care of those kind of voices. There couldn't be a better career than that. I will.
1: Yeah, I love seeing that connection yeah. where um, art and medicine meet. It, it makes me almost think of um, sports medicine as well. If you are able to work, you know, with an athlete who is um, performing at a very high level, to be able to assist them and guide them, uh, I'm sure is incredibly satisfying. And the same can be true for singers and artists and dancers, et cetera. So it's it's cool to think about that sort of direct connection. So let's go now to how you ended up in Chicago and um, ended up working with the population and the people and the singers and the performers that you work with now.
0: Yeah, so I landed in Chicago in 2003 and this was actually not my first job. Um, I finished my fellowship at Vanderbilt um, in 2001. So I'm living in in Nashville and had just the most wonderful experience there because that's such a music town. Um, all the recognizable names mm-hmm. uh, in the country music industry would come through the office regularly. And so again, I'm like, this is heaven. Like, it's a it's a job, and it's medicine, and I get to see all these cool people whose music I've listened to forever, and have them come into the, you know, it's just like, this is the best job for me. But fellowship is ending, and I need a paycheck. Um, <laughs> So the, my first position was at the University of Nebraska. Um, and so I was in Omaha for two years. And wonderful people and a wonderful institution. Um, and they had some very innovative things there. And I did like it. But I, I felt, uh, well, strongly enough to move, uh, that I needed a larger city and access to a, a different performing venue. Um, and I say that fully understanding that my understanding of professional voice has evolved. Um, I still, I mean, I, you know, I'm still a musician and a singer, and I still love that niche of the people that I take care of. But I'm fully aware that I see a lot of teachers, I see a lot of pastors, I see a lot of lawyers, I see a lot of people. Uh, in yoga, fitness classes, there are a ton of people who need their voice to do their job, who don't necessarily think of themselves as professional voice users, but they absolutely are. Um, and, and so all of that, I think I needed to be in Chicago to build that differently.
1: It's funny because every one of the professions that you just mentioned are also um people or groups of people that I often come into contact with as a teacher and a coach. So I'm very familiar, and it's interesting to think about who exactly is a professional voice user, because I think a lot of times we do think of singers um, and performers and actors, etc. But yeah, there are so many of us that need our voice to earn our living for our jobs. So if we were to consider Those people who you're speaking about, the ones that you come into contact with most often here in Chicago, what are some of the most common issues that you hear or notice or or what are some patterns that arise as these people come through your office door?
0: Um, I think mostly it comes down to clarity of voice and then also vocal effort, like something in, in those big categories, like what, what, what is the, the tone? What does the voice sound like? Uh, and in particular, individuals notice when there's something different about their voice. Um, and, and, and so some qualitative change like that. Or the amount of effort it takes them to do things that they used to be able to do effortlessly now seem to require a lot of input. Those are probably the two big picture categories that bring most of the people in. You know, something along those lines.
1: Yeah, I love that you use that word clarity because I often use that in the work that I do. Because to me, clear is a pretty objective term and people often know when their voice isn't feeling clear when it's feeling rough or raspy or gravelly or whatever it is and that that sound comes with it as you mentioned more effort more work it feels more laborious to make sound Um, so okay so if we think about that if someone comes in and their voice isn't clear and it feels like it's taking more effort and more work then what could be wrong with them? What are some of the injuries or pathologies that might be causing that issue?
0: I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to back up just one second uh, yeah. to what you just said. Because I do think most people understand uh, when there's a change in their voice, but I've absolutely had people come in and tell me they've always been hoarse. Right. And I always challenge that. <laughs> uh, and, I'll, and I'll ask, so when, when you came out of the womb, you were hoarse. Right, And they're like, well, no, not that young. And I'm like, well, you have not always been horse. So we may be dealing with a habit that you've had for a very long time, but I don't, you were not, and it's not impossible because I can't think of a couple of pathologies that would produce this, but it is very, very rare for someone to truly have been horse their whole life.
1: I think this is great because you know we can think in general that a healthy voice is most often clear. Like you and I speaking to each other right now, there is a clarity to our sound. And if you have a sound that lacks clarity, it might not be a deal breaker, um, but it also might be something that is causing you to work a little bit harder than you need to. And you might not need to just think that it's the norm.
0: I think we just have to be careful about being dismissive and saying, Oh, my voice is just like that, or it's always been this way, um, as, a, as an understanding that helps move us away from thinking, oh, well, there might be an issue that we need to fix.
1: Right. Yeah. We tend to normalize our pain and suffering, honestly, you know, especially if it, it just feels like something that would be too difficult or, or insurmountable. We'll just say, well, that's just how it is. And I think the voice is, is a great storyteller in that regard because you truly can can hear the clarity in someone's voice. And that is often a reflection of so much else about their life. And in addition to that, we can tend to romanticize those sounds. I mean, we certainly have heard others say, if we haven't said it ourselves, you know, I love the smoky quality or the raspy quality or the gravelly quality of someone's voice. And although there might be a cool sound there, Um, Aesthetically, it also might be the sound of their struggle or suffering.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what what we see a lot of um, are conditions that really set the voice up to be somewhat harmed, let's put it that way. And so I I talk about this in the understanding that the vocal folds sort of sit (laughs) right at the meeting point for some things that can cause trouble.
1: Cool. And let me just interrupt really quick to say that we will be using vocal folds and vocal cords as terms interchangeably. And, um, why don't you go ahead and describe what they are as you're talking about where they are.
0: So, um, I, I they are almost synonymous, but, uh, and this is what I mean when I say we make things unnecessarily hard, but, um, Vocal cords is the term that a lot of people were using. Um, And then, and this is not wrong, but uh, we we really did understand that they're not really cords, they're folds of tissue. Um, And the way in which they fold over is a part of what allows them to vibrate and make sound the way that they do. So it's just more accurate to call them vocal folds, but so as not to appear an elitist, I will sometimes... Throw a vocal cord in there because <laughs> um, I do understand that that's the more familiar term and what a lot of people use, uh, but fold is, is is a more accurate term.
1: Great, yeah, and and they're sort of the central feature of this thing that we affectionately refer to as the voice box um, at the middle of the larynx. And you were saying that they sit atop the
0: they're on top of the airway, the, the windpipe. And so that's kind of the force that makes them do what they do is when you exhale, there is a a driving force with that. And that's what sets the vocal folds into vibration and that vibration then becomes sound.
1: And I think it's so interesting to also note that those two pieces of tissue, the vocal folds, come together in the form of a wave because you know, we think about sound waves, the the origin of this sound is from that of another wave. And that wave is of the body.
0: Uh, One of the reasons that we look for a clear voice is that's a sign that the vocal folds are vibrating free of anything that interrupts that wave. Because the way in which that wave is nice and smooth and repeats in a cycle is what gives you a nice pure tone. And anything, whether it be mucus or damage that makes them not vibrate quite as smoothly or something sitting on them like a cyst or a polyp or nodules or papillomas or any of the other things that you know we can get into, um, all of those things come down to the, the commonality that they interfere with how smoothly the cycle uh, repeats itself when the vocal folds vibrate.
1: Right. And and then that interference manifests in our experience as effort, because if, if one part of the body isn't working well, the way that the body is designed is that other parts of the body will put in more effort, will try to pick up the slack. And so in this case, if the vocal folds, the wave, the cycle of the vocal folds, it has interference, then... Um, extra musculature within the throat and the neck and the back and the belly and the jaw all over. It, it, it tries to help out to make things work with more ease and that effort. It's what I was talking about earlier. It can become so normalized. It can feel like um, just what it takes. To make sound, but the truth of the matter is is that when someone is performing with a sound that 's clear and free and easy at a high level they 'll often express that the experience was effortless um, that there 's energetic force, but the physical experience was not laborious and I think that that you can only know that experience when you have it. Um, but not to get ahead of myself, so let's talk more about what that interference actually is. Like what are those pathologies or injuries and how do they show up?
0: Yeah, so um, again, the the, the the vocal folds work together. You have a right one and a left one and they vibrate against each other. Um, and they do this actually fairly rapidly. You know, when, when you, uh, talk about your high notes or upper register in particular um you're moving them back and forth several hundreds of times per second um in order to have a high pitch generated whenever you have that kind of energy being controlled and packaged you there is a setup that at least lends itself to there being some friction there the point in the middle of the vocal folds is kind of where they are most vulnerable. And that's where we tend to see nodes, nodules, um, another word for it that we use is is phonotrauma. And the main reason that I use that is not to confuse people, but because it sounds better in a lot of ways than nodes and people are less afraid of it. Um, (laughs) and, and, And in particular, when you sort of connect it to the fact that this is rubbing together of the vocal folds that becomes a little bit traumatic. And so then you get a little bit of swelling because of that. And that's what we call phonotrauma. And the great thing about that is if you stop the underlying condition that made it happen, they tend to go away. Like I said, if there, there's friction often from The approach to the note or how frequently someone is singing the note or, you know, a lot of the the, the technical issues underlying preparation for it. And so if we address those things, we can get those to go away and not even have surgical intervention. I mean, ultimately, I can operate on them and take them off, but it's actually pretty rare that that's what we need to do to fix it. Um, Because being attentive to good vocal technique, working with a voice teacher, a speech language pathologist, um, we can get most of those to go away. So that's the good news. Um, but I think the, the, the hard thing is getting anyone to change your behavior is never easy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know that from first-hand experience. Um <laughs> But So I'd like to quickly try and distill back to you what you just said, for my own sake, but also in case it's helpful to anyone who might be new to this information and is trying to understand with more clarity. Essentially, what you're saying is the vocal folds come together in the form of a wave. And because of the nature of a wave, there's this sort of point or this area where the folds touch um, first, and that area is more susceptible to what you referred to as phonotrauma, or we could just think of as like, swelling, injury that then would turn into a vocal nodule or a polyp or what have you. And I also wanted to reflect back on this use of the terminology phonotrauma because I actually learned from your colleague, Jan Potter-Reed, who is a speech-language pathologist. She often tells her patients that they have gunk on their vocal folds, which I just love because, especially as singers and um i don't know even for the general population, this terminology around vocal nodules um, or nodes or anything it's so wrought so often people hear those words and they believe that they've done something wrong that it's their fault um, and I always like to think about this in terms of athletics because. If a basketball player sprains their ankle, they don't walk away from the doctor feeling like they've personally failed in some way. But if a singer has an injury or a problem, so often they're made to feel, or they just do feel like they've messed it up. So I really like this idea of taking some of the sting out by changing up the terms a bit.
0: Uh, It's interesting. uh the parallels between laryngology and and professional voice work um, and sports medicine, because I I use and borrow a lot from sports medicine to try to shape a different approach and culture surrounding these types of things. Because as you just mentioned, I used to talk about this all the time, particularly when he was still playing here, Derek Rose um, you know, great player, great guy, but he was on the injured list most of the time that he was here. But but there was no stigma about that. Like no one said he's injured because he wasn't playing the the, the correct way, or he's injured because he had horrible technique on the basketball court. Like it, there was no uh, attempt to penalize him for going out there and doing what he does. Yeah. Um, and I say that about uh, you know Serena Williams is is often has a sprain here, or something is taped, and, but no one says, oh, her technique is bad. <laughs> you know, she, she plays hard, she wins, and we accept that that's the cost of doing business. Um, and so I, I, I try to get performers to not be quite so hard on themselves and internalize all these things about, I did something wrong, or I had bad technique, or I made this happen. Uh, because that is not a healthy place to try to move into making the corrections that we need to make.
1: I love that because ultimately what you're saying is that there's a more compassionate place to start this story from. And, And I think we just need to also normalize that if you're a professional voice user, that there's a higher likelihood in your lifetime that you will experience injury or pathology um, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you, that it, like you said, it's, it's sort of a, a cost of doing business, but you also have to be able to hold this paradoxical truth that there are behaviors and experiences and lifestyles that would more likely point one down the path of injury and problem. And we can change those behaviors, but like you said, that's the hard part. <laughs> Okay, so I'm curious if you could maybe identify some themes that you see in the people that walk through your door who are suffering or struggling in some way with their voice. Um is there anything that comes to mind, anything that arises that is likely to put someone in that position?
0: So I mean I think a lot of this turns on a basic concept of <laughs> Self embracing self and self love because I think,
1: oh, yeah.
0: Well, because I, I think that, that what I see, like when you when you strip off a lot of the layers, the fundamental problem that can get people into trouble is asking their voice to be something it's not, <laughs> um, and trying to make your round voice fit into the square box is often. What leads to the tension that gets resolved in trauma? <laughs> um, and 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 so and sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out what the mismatch is and and sometimes it's just like not taking good advantage of technology. We see a lot of teachers in the classroom, and Part of the issue is that the classroom size has grown um, and that places more demands on the voice in terms of using the voice as a a, a tool for discipline and the teacher then trying to project their voice so that all the kids can hear them um, and, and those types of things and not necessarily feeling empowered to go to the principal and say, I need technology that's going to do some of this work for me. I don't need to be trying to project my voice to fill up this cavernous space, particularly not when there's a, a product available <laughs> that we could use to, to help with that. Um, you know, Same thing with fitness instructors, that they have back-to-back classes and they have you know, so many people in the class, and because they're moving around, an amplification device gets distorted, and, you know, uh, the the types of logistical things that are real, um, but, you know, so often come down to the fact that we are really driven to make more money, (laughs) Um, and not as aware of how we take care of people.
1: Wow. Wow. So much good stuff here, Steve, Um, a lot to chew on, but I want to go back first to that statement that you made that I think is so rich and so meaningful and so important that this all comes down to self-love and our ability to embrace our natural voice. You know, I think so often when I work with people that There are these clues that they're getting, that they're receiving. And like we said earlier, sometimes those clues show up in terms of discomfort or too much effort. And then we tend to want to normalize that. Well, maybe that's just how it is. But those clues are always an opportunity to reflect back on whether or not you are loving on your most natural true self. Whether you're taking care, whether you're setting appropriate boundaries. And when we don't do that, inevitably it manifests in some sort of uh, dysfunction with the voice. And so it just sort of comes back to listening carefully and honoring that which we know to be true about ourselves. And in this case, specifically about our voice. But then now I also want to acknowledge how complicated this be because of the piece that you ended on around capitalism. You know, so many of us are asked to do things that by their very nature don't honor our body or our voice. One scenario that comes to mind is a person who might be pursuing the performing arts, let's say acting, um, musical theater, and then also waiting tables or working in a loud bar at night and Those two things can just be sort of inherently incompatible while one is trying to pay their bills and make ends meet and have a flexible schedule that, you know, the restaurant industry or the bar might allow. There's this um, struggle to actually keep up with what the demands of the voice are and then go to an audition and sing well or perform well. It just is complicated.
0: Absolutely. Um, And, and, you know, our... (laughs) our recent experiences in the pandemic have really, uh, you know, shown the light on just how fragile an ecosystem we have created for people um, when really both of their jobs went away. So they're not performing and they're not serving. It, it Yeah, I, th- that's difficult to get around because our society turns the way it turns. And it's difficult f- for me to prescribe someone voice rest um, and, and honestly, there is no disability for that. Right. Like we have to be creative about it. But if you look at Medicare guidelines, there is, there's almost no disability for voice disorders.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And I'm thinking too, as you're saying this, of that moment where let's say someone is making their living by waiting tables or working in a gym, um, doing something that is challenging for the voice while... Desiring or pursuing a performing arts career and that moment where they find themselves in the thick of uh, an injury or pathology and then realizing that they have to give up something. And it's sort of this existential moment where it's like, am I going to give up my dream or am I going to give up the only thing I know how to do to support my dream? It's so significant for so many people um, when they come up against this moment. And the only reason I'm digging into this is because anyone who's been listening to the podcast knows that there are these moments with the voice where people really have to um, come to terms with who it is that they are, what are their priorities, what do they want for themselves, what decisions have to be made in light of that.
0: And and, and I think that you can't divorce your voice from all of you. Um, the, the, The body and the mind underneath the voice have to be functional, um, and in sync, uh, in order for, for all of this to work.
1: <laughs> Aren't we complex creatures? Okay. So in addition to, let's say behavior or lifestyle or scenario, are there any, um, other things that we should be, Consider that are common that might point someone down the path of experiencing issues with their voice
0: You know for me the big three um, That underlie a lot of voice disorders are acid reflux um, Allergy and along with that allergy is sinus disease and, and post nasal drip. So those kind of things circling together and that's because the post drip, as that drips down, the first thing it encounters that will be a stopgate are the vocal cords or vocal folds. Um, as the reflux, if it comes up from below, the first place it will encounter that will be a barrier is the vocal folds. And so they sit right in the middle of some badness. Um, and so those underlying things, we usually try to make sure we're correcting and addressing in every patient.
1: Yeah, well, and as you know, I've been on my own long, long winding journey with reflux. It's something I've been struggling with for quite some time that was diagnosed by you. And it was fascinating at the time because I thought I was having sinus issues, but um, the inflammation was actually coming from below and I had no idea. Um, And if anyone wants to message me, I've learned a lot along this journey that I'd be happy to share. But I think reflux in particular is so mysterious to so many people, yet so impactful on so many voices.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, one of the most frequent conversations I have in my office is explaining to people that reflux is not just heartburn and acid indigestion. Because I I don't know if it's the drug companies or my colleagues, I'm not sure who did such a good job of convincing everyone that reflux has nothing to do with the voice. But patients, uh, you know, almost want to fight me uh, when I'm like, you know, part of your problem is acid reflux. I don't have acid reflux. Okay, why do you think that? I don't have any heartburn. Okay, but do you have throat clearing? Yes. Do you have cough? Yes. Do you have the sensation of something stuck in your throat? Yes. Well, those are reflux symptoms. No way, <laughs> you know. But you're right that it is absolutely an underlying phenomenon. Um for a lot of the voice complaints,
1: maybe we should do an episode sometime just on reflux, because I think there's actually a lot to say about that. But let's say we address sinus issues, we address um, reflux issues, you know, we work on behavior, and we still need to go the route of surgery. I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for us.
0: Um, so you know, that's it somewhat depends on what's there. Um, but let's say someone had a polyp on a vocal fold. Um, those tend to be removed um, you know, in good hands. Fairly, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's day surgery, patients come in that morning, we put them to sleep, um, we use a scope that goes through the mouth so there's no scar, there's no incision that people can see. Um, We work through that scope and using very small instruments and under the microscope, take off the polyp. Um, We have people on rest about four days. Uh, So often they'll have surgery on a Thursday and then on Monday, they'll come back and see me and Jan and we'll get started with the voice rehabilitative therapy. As long as things look like the, you know, the preliminary healing looks good, which in most cases it does. Um, And then, yeah, we, we get them started talking fairly early and get the tissues mobilized again and they heal very well.
1: Cool. And I know there are so many different scenarios um, that can occur with these sort of thing and a lot of different pathologies and problems that people have so um, I'll actually link in the show notes to your website because I know you have images that people can explore if they have an interest in looking at anatomy and physiology and before and after shots I know that you also have this in some of your social media so uh, hopefully if people are interested and want to know more they can check that out OK, now that we have discussed potential problems, let's think aloud about healthy, happy voices that are free to express and communicate themselves clearly. What are um, some of the elements you see that point someone in that direction? I mean, I think,
0: uh, you know, basic things like always making sure um you have good hydration because the vocal folds work best when they're very well lubricated and the mucus that we make is nice and thin so that it acts as more a a lubricant than gumming up the works. Uh, You know, other big picture things like having a balanced diet and, and having good energy sources so that your body can perform in a way that, you know, keeps up with what you ask it to do. Getting daily exercise, you know the, the the routines that help someone be healthy in general, involving nutrition, hydration, and exercise. Um, I think are you know baseline for life. Then I think more specific to voice use. Um, I'm a really big advocate of the vocal nap, even in the position where you know that there are significant voice demands or your vocal load is going to be pretty big, you can take five or 10 minutes and go and just be quiet. Um, Interrupt the driving force that often is internal to just keep pushing through. And also think just there's there's a mental healthy aspect of that by, by being able to say no to the pressure to just keep going
1: this is so great to hear you say all of this because I think so many of us at any given time want there to be some sort of magic bullet. Like people will ask, you know, what am I not supposed to eat? And what lozenge can I be sucking on? And what tea should I be drinking? And what temperature is the water? How many scarves should I wear? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this just comes back to you need to eat right. You need to exercise. You need to sleep. You need to set appropriate boundaries for yourself. You need to not push past the point of no return. And you need to sort of honor this information that you get constantly about who you are and how it is that you're doing. And that narrative, it is so counter to the narrative that we're conditioned toward, which is that there should be a quick fix, that there should be another way around. But this work is about treating not just the voice, but the whole person. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to switch gears and see if I can get you... um... (laughs) (laughs) to dish a little bit of course within the constraints of HIPAA laws um, but I know personally that you've worked with some incredibly well-known singers within the realm of pop and gospel and R&B and musical theater and I know that most of that needs to be kept behind closed doors but recently the one and only Deborah Cox posted on her Instagram in reference to you Uh, She said this, I will never forget the time I called you during intermission of my performance. It was one of my worst vocal nights, fatigued, sad, almost hoarse. I was so scared my voice would never recover, but you took the call. You saw me immediately and took time and care to help me recover from a very tough performance schedule. You will never know how much that meant to me. We celebrate you, doctor. You are the best. You're not only brilliant, but you have a real heart for the artist, performer, singer, speaker thank you for helping me to continue to use my voice Uh, i just love that it's so beautiful such a beautiful tribute to the work that you do i was wondering if you could tell us um so let's say deborah cox or someone like deborah cox (laughs) is in the middle of a performance and they're struggling and they're giving you a call what is it that you can even do for them
0: Um, So, first of all, I will say, like, you know, those are the moments for me that are still surreal um, and remind me of how much I love this work, because that, you know, that's the type of thing that takes me back to Miss Bessie and hearing these voices and Annie Lennox and saying, wow, that is so cool what they are able to do with their voice. Um, And, you know, from... How Did You Get Here came out when I was in residency. And I, I, and there were so many times um, that I would put that song on because that's how I felt being a resident. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> and when is this going to end? Um, and so, you know, it, feel, it feels very full circle for me to be able to do anything to help someone whose expression and artistry was, was you know, critical to being soothing for me. Um, and so, yeah, th- th- those kind of calls are still, for me, a little bit of pinch myself because I'm like, yeah, I'm this guy from West Virginia. <laughs> and it, it I would not have thought, um, you know, a- along a lot of points in my life that I would be someone who people of that caliber are calling me on my cell phone. Um, but, yeah, it, it's still a very cool thing.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so, but if if someone like Deborah calls you, like, what does she need? Like what can actually get her through that performance that night?
0: Um, you know, I think it it depends on exactly what's going on, but a lot of times, um generally speaking, there is something inflammatory going on. So uh, some sort of anti-inflammatory medication will help you know calm things down. And, and get us back to a better baseline, at least to start.
1: So it's kind of like what we were saying earlier, something swollen that's inhibiting the cycle of the wave of the vocal fold. And in this case, I guess what you're saying is there's a, a temporary solution that could alleviate that swelling and allow them to get through the performance or, or whatever it is that they need temporarily. That's not a permanent fix, but can uh, help in the moment.
0: And I think that this is another one of those areas where I say that the laryngologist probably has different sensibilities about, um, you know, things like, yes, you can always pull someone out of a show. But do you understand whether or not this is a show where, um, you know, the the person the show is about (laughs) is in the audience that day or these critics (laughs) are there that day? Uh, You know, like, there's some nuances of of, there are better times than others to pull someone out of a show. Because it's true, like, you don't want someone to deliver a bad performance. But are there ways that we can work around this and get you through the show so that it's not bad? It might not be stellar, but it won't be bad. And it helps you in terms of reliability to show up.
1: And I I guess what I'm gleaning that you're saying is a specialist can maybe better determine the risk reward of a situation versus a generalist. If, If you're working with someone who actually works with high level performers, they can understand better what's at stake versus how that might impact the voice long term.
0: Yeah, but it takes, you know, exactly what you said. It takes good sensibilities to realize what's the appropriate intervention for the moment and for the situation,
1: yeah, it's so true. And it takes real skill to be sensitive to that because it's my experience that I've had a number of singers come in through the door who quite honestly have just been handled um, in a way that was more hurtful than helpful by, uh, specifically by an ENT or a laryngologist, someone who wasn't sensitive to the nature of their situation or to their story, who they are, their position in the world. And, and I think this is complicated because... It draws on issues of education. It draws on issues of race, socioeconomic status. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm opening a can of worms here, but I've just seen this play out in a number of different ways. And it's why I refer people to you, honestly, Steve, and this isn't an advertisement for you, but just the fact that you have or are able to have this conversation around this piece of awareness, um, it really makes a difference.
0: The the way in which the relationships develop and I find them so rewarding still turns on uh, the my ability to, to listen um, and approach some of these things with just a different sensibility and understanding um, and have what we refer to as cultural competence about it. And I do think you know, one, one layer of that is understanding the culture of a singer um, and a performer. And, you know, as, as we sort of talked about, I do think sometimes people struggle with that if that's not the kind of patient that they see regularly. But I think another layer of that is understanding the culture of a performer of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I was on uh, Clubhouse talking about singing uh, a couple days ago. Uh, And we were again, revisiting this idea that there's often the narrative that most black and brown people started singing in church and they don't really get trained, um, but they do know how to sing, but they have horrible technique, but there are all these assumptions, you know, and and, um, uh, we don't challenge those and we don't push back enough. Um, And those assumptions can come from Black people. Um, And so uh, for me, at least, it's just trying to be open to meeting you where you are, understanding what the background is, and understanding how you feel about your voice so that I am as careful as I can be not to try to make you feel like I'm judging you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, this is so important because there are so many singers that I've encountered who... Come up against this idea that because they are who they are and they sing the music they sing, that they're inherently doing something wrong or bad. They're not able to enter a space like yours on sort of a neutral playing field, and and it's so frustrating. Um,
0: Particularly like in Chicago, we have a lot of gospel and blues and jazz singers, um, and you know, the, 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 a lot of them carry the weight of like having someone, if not say it directly intimate to them that they don't know how to sing and you know that's a hard thing (laughs) um and so i i think that that's one of the big picture narratives that i see is that I, i hope i'm able to repair some of that damage i wonder why why my name won't treat me right i why Why man will treat me right I think that it is assumed with a lot of black and brown performers that they have this natural gift, but they don't know music. We don't assume that they have a performing arts degree or that they have studied at a conservatory we just assume that they have this natural gift because and again it it it, it, it's it's the way in which um i i don't love this term but it is true the black people are fetishized and, and and so it's you know we can simultaneously appreciate your talent but also think that it's something supernatural not something that you worked for
1: Yeah, and this is certainly the case in voice coaching and voice teaching and voice pedagogy This idea that there's a hierarchical value to certain styles um, And those are often intrinsically tied to race And this is something that I need to and people like me need to continue to um, Evaluate and deconstruct so as to create some real change in these areas So as to Support the art form, um, the art form of voice and singing and song and music.
0: So, so I think acknowledging that is a part of what makes it look different. And then, so we move to this bigger picture of healthcare. And we have people who, through poverty and initiatives and and things that were sanctioned in this country that were, in fact, racist, um, have less access to health care, less trust in health care. And so we, we still have a lot of work to do for how we, again, receive people into the system for who they are, celebrating who they are, and understanding what things we need to do our best to reverse and you know it's just, just going to take a lot of work on the part of the caregivers um both to repair some of that damage and reestablish and restore that trust and then on the part of the artists to open themselves up to trusting people
1: again right ultimately it's about restoring relationships and trust and um it's not it's not an easy path uh, yeah
0: i mean it's a, and, and yeah i mean i've been here 17 years and and i have certainly been as open as i can be but you know there's still a ton of people who have no idea that there's someone who looks like them who does this work and even if they do like it, it still it can be tense and and you know one of the most frequent pieces of feedback that I get is like, this is not at all what I expected,
1: Mm.
0: but that's sad.
1: Yeah. I mean, it feels nice in the moment when you get the compliment, but at the same time you wish that the compliment need not be. Um, I'm actually going to put a pin in this conversation because I think that there's an opportunity for us to dig into this a little bit deeper in the future. So hopefully you'll come back for another episode with the doctor. Um, I wanted to finish, though, our time together by just asking you, what's next for you? Um, Whether that be, you know, with voice and voice medicine or actually in terms of your voice. Uh, We haven't even really addressed the fact that you're a great singer who actively sings and, and uses his voice. What
0: the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing. Well, I would grow, but my voice teacher doesn't let me come to his studio anymore. Um, (laughs) So, um...
1: (laughs) pandemic.
0: I mean, I I didn't name who he was or anything like that, because that would be unfair of me. Um, You know, I I told you this, because I've been working on this musical for I don't know how long. It will never get done, but I was...
1: Oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) You're writing a musical. I forgot. Tell us more about that. Really, two,
0: But neither of them move far. But I have another one... um, an adaptation of cinderella called Pump. that the the songs are in my head it's just we'll we'll see what happens with them
1: well now you've officially recorded the fact that you're doing it on a podcast so maybe that'll put some pressure on you for the future to get this done and let the world hear what it is that you're working on
0: Oh, Devin, I've been working on these for decades. (laughs) (laughs) I was in medical school writing some of these songs.
1: (laughs) Pumps 2021. Yeah. All right, then. Well, on that note, we'll wrap this up here. And just uh, let me say that I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate having access to you as a resource. And I can't wait to bring you back for another episode.
0: I so look forward to
1: it. All right. Well, there it is. Another terrific conversation with another human being that I just find to be illuminating, such a wealth of knowledge and an uncanny ability to communicate that knowledge in a way that feels tremendously impactful. If you want to know more about Dr. Steve Sims and the work that he does, please visit chicagovoicedoc.com. And if you want to know more about me, check me out at davinyoungs.com and on all the socials. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is a bonus episode to conclude the first season of the podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, please like, rate, subscribe, share. Tell everyone you know about what it is that I'm trying to do here. And if you happen to know anyone who has a story that you think would be good for this podcast around their voice... Tell me about it. Reach out to me at IAMIAM at DavinYoungs.com. My friend, may you experience the peace and blessings that only your voice can bring, and may you know intimately the sound of you. Until next time.